Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We're going to take some time going through in Romans 8 and packing some Calvinistic interpretations and stuff like that. So this will be quite extensive and quite drilling down than just a normal Bible study. So I just, I'm going to go slow and I'm going to basically uh, take our time through it because I want you to understand all the nuances of the Greek and the terminologies and different words and stuff like that. I want to move into now start unpacking uh, these verses that Calvinists use to tell a different story. So on your first page that I gave you last week, it's entitled Romans 8, 28 through 30. I want to go to that green section that says to those who are the called according to his purpose. Okay. So if you're going to follow me, that's where I'm going to be. It's that second green line. You all find it. Okay. The last week passage, uh, not this week's. We're going to get to this week's, but I want to still finish off last week's passage. Okay, the first thing you want to see in this passage, like I said, we started verse 28, we dealt with that. Now we're moving into this other one. To those who are the called according to his purpose, which typically Calvinists get this all wrong. Okay, so as you start unpacking this, when you look at the term, those who are the called, so all things work together for the good of those who love God, that's a kind of believer, to those who are the called. Notice it doesn't use a verb. It doesn't say to those who are called according to his purpose, but are the called. Did you notice that? Okay. That is a big difference. That is significant. That is not a verb. And it's referring to a label giving, given to Christians. It is a name. It is a label. It is a terminology, not necessarily a verb. So the other way you could see these verses in another light is to the appointed, to the labeled, to the named. So that's what Paul is trying to say here, that they're given a title once they believe. Okay. And they, they are the called according to his purpose. Now, you can take that several ways. To his purpose, he's going to continue on. We're going to get to the golden chain. He could be a reference to the purpose of God in salvation for anyone who believes, which will give five things that will happen to the individual who expresses faith in the Messiah. And um, they will be justified, glorified, sanctified, uh, all the other things in the chain that I'll talk about. So... The purpose of God could be a reference, and this is legitimate if you want to take this way, to the plan of God and salvation. Okay? The other way you can interpret that is that according to his purpose, these called ones, that he has a purpose individually for each believer. Okay? And that purpose is talked about in Romans 12 about the gifts that they will receive from the Holy Spirit, and those gifts then will determine what they should be doing 
for God's purpose for them individually in their lives. So you can take the passage both ways, and I, I believe both ways are legitimate in interpreting. But you cannot take the passage in a Calvinistic way because there's no Calvinism in this. According to his purpose, has nothing to do with preordination, has nothing to do with predestination of the individual. It has to do with God's purpose for believers. The ultimate purpose is for not only us to be saved or justified, but to eventually become conformed to the image of the Messiah. That's the ultimate for the believer. That's the plan of God. And like I've used this analogy before, and I think it's apt for it. If you apply for a job, the boss or the HR department has determined already what the package deal is. So that anyone who takes the position that's being offered gets the package deal. So the way Paul is presenting that is this, that the package is predetermined by God, which we'll get to. So anyone who becomes a believer gets this package, and in this passage, gets the label, the called. Okay? Or the appointed. Now, to understand the idea of the, the, the term called, Paul assumes that you know where this phrase, the called, comes from. And it comes from Matthew 22. Okay? And I'm not going to take the time to read it because it, it'll take a long time to unpack it, but just let me unpack what we understand from that parable. This is the parable of the wedding feast. And the invitation goes out to Israel. They don't respond, so he tells them to, to his servants to go to the highways and byways and get anyone who will come to the wedding. So invite anybody. So it's the idea of Israel being invited, and then Israel rejects, and so now we go into the Gentiles and inviting them to the wedding feast. Okay. And so anyway, the, par the parable goes on, and it then... They get inside, they're all ready for the wedding feast. And, and then, as I told you before, those who go to a Jewish wedding, the, the, the host provides the wedding garments for you. So you don't buy your own clothes, you go there and they clothe you once you get in the gate. You're given something, okay? You're given wedding clothes. So if you respond to the invitation, you get the wedding clothes when you're there. However, in the parable, someone tries to sneak in and doesn't have wedding clothes. So it means that they're trying to get into the wedding and they didn't follow the order in which you get the wedding clothes, if that makes sense. They try, they're trying to bust in on the party. In other words, theologically, somebody is coming, trying to come in other than through the way of invitation. What possibly could that be if you're not going to come to the wedding by invitation, but you're going to come without the invitation? What would the individual be doing to try to get into the wedding? He's a wedding crasher. But how is he crashing the wedding? He's crashing and coming in without an invitation. So again, the, the, the order salutis is 
You respond to the invitation. The invitation goes out to everybody, right? That's what the idea of highways and byways. It goes out to everybody. You respond, and then if you take the invitation and say, I'm coming, then you go on the date, and they're there, and then you're given the wedding clothes. But then this wedding crasher comes, but he doesn't. he hasn't responded to the invitation. But he's still trying to bust into the wedding feast. So then, therefore, what is he trying to do? He's making his own way. That's right. So the, you're nailed it. The wedding crasher is coming in by works, not by the invitation. He can respond to the invitation, but the invitation, in theological terms, you respond to it by faith. Right? You respond to it. So the wedding crasher is the works-based wedding guy. And he's going to go in without an invitation. Well, you're not getting in unless you go through the Messiah, right? Which is by faith. Okay. But then here's the phrase. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay? So there's the term called, and then there's the word chosen. And I want you to look at the order salutis of being called in the parable and who that refers to, and what chosen means according to that parable. That will tell you the language that Paul is using here. Many are called. Who does that refer to? What does that refer to in the parable? Many are called. That the invitation goes out to all. God is calling everybody to salvation, according to the Scriptures. The call goes out. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Paul says that God commands all to be saved. The times of ignorance are past, Acts 17. He calls all men to be saved. That's the obedience that people need to have is answer the call to salvation. Now, with the terminology being used, Jesus said those who are invited are called. Okay, that's another terminology. Therefore, now I want you to bridge it to Romans 8, and he goes to those who are the called. Notice what Paul is doing. We know that everyone's called, but he calls believers the called ones. Therefore, what Paul is doing is using the activity of God of calling people to salvation. And if they respond, Paul is giving those believers the label, the called ones, if that makes sense. It's a designation. It's another name for a believer if that makes sense. And it's related to the organization to which they belong to. What organization do believers belong to now? The church. Guess what the church is called in Greek? Ekklesia. And what does ekklesia mean? The called out ones. Do you see how the terminology is being consistent here? It is not a Calvinist interpretation that God calls only the elect. It is that every believer gets the designation, the called one. If you believe, you get the label. Now, that's funny because we always call believers Christians, but they didn't call people Christians back then. That term is very rare in Scripture. I think it's like used one time. They were called, or twice, yes. It was called, they were called by other names, the followers of the way, things of that nature. But when you start looking in the scripture, you start seeing that Paul is calling Christians by different names and he calls them the called ones. 
Oh, so to break this down, we're dealing with a label rather than a function of God. I want you to see that. Because Calvinists believe you're only called if you're the elect. They see it as a function rather than a label. Okay? Now, many are called, and you get the term called one if you respond, but few are chosen. How does the chosen relate to the parable? You're chosen for what? To receive wedding garments. Not that you were chosen to be picked, because all were invited to the wedding, but you're chosen, you're given the term chosen when and after you believe. And then you get the wedding clothes if you respond to the invitation. So to be chosen means that you're, you're chosen because of what? Your response of faith. And therefore, you are chosen to be given what? What does the wedding robe symbolize? The righteousness of the Messiah. So basically what God has determined is he has a prepackaged plan for everyone who believes in the Messiah, they will get this prepackaged plan, and that prepackaged plan includes the righteousness of the Messiah. Hence, they're justified because of that. But there's more to that. They will be adopted. They will be resurrected. They will, um, they will, if they, they, they do what they need to do, they will rule and reign with the Messiah. If they do what they need to do, they will eat from the tree of life. These are all prepackaged plans. And so the parable is what describes the language that Paul is using here. Okay, let me stop there. Any questions so far on that one before we move on? Okay. So, chosen, according to the Scripture, is based on what? What did the Calvinists say about people being chosen? Why are, in the Calvinist system, why are people chosen to be saved? God elected them for what? For what reason? He just did it for his good will, his good purposes. That's it. That's what they'll say, right? Just, this is his will and that's what he wants and he just chose these people and reprobated everyone else. So it's an arbitrary decision on God's part to choose individuals in the Calvinist system. It's a complete arbitrary thing. And folks, that's dangerous. Now you're moving into a pagan fatalism at this point, okay, with Calvinism. Okay. But according to what we just read, the, the Matthew 22 passage, and, then, and we, even the nomenclature that Paul is using, you're chosen based on what? Faith. Now that sets the whole game apart from the Calvinists. They're, they're saying people are chosen just because on the, the will of God, and we're saying the scriptures teach you're chosen based on your response to God in faith. Oh. Is it that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. It's that simple. Now, this will help you with the next phrase. Let's move to the second page I gave you. Guess right. 
And so therefore, hence, this would interpret the parable of the, the ten virgins for you. If you read the parable of the ten virgins, it's a wedding feast, right? And five of them have oil and the other ones don't. And so they can't enter without it. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the oil represents regeneration. And so all that wedding language plays into this. So the real, it's, it's interesting, Richard, that when you know the Jewish wedding language, you'll understand eschatology with the Galilean marriage. Have you guys ever seen that video? Before the wrath? You, you need to watch that video. I think you can get it on Amazon. You can just watch it and stream it or whatever. Um, get the Before the Wrath. It talks about how the Galilean wedding is. And the Galilean wedding, if you look at it, follows eschatology. And the interesting thing of the Galilean wedding, if I just put the Galilean wedding down on paper and I looked at all the things that happened during it, it's a complete picture of a pre-tribulational rapture, seven-year seven year, uh, uh, seven year uh, tribulation, and a second coming. It's a complete picture of that. There's no way you can come up with any other eschatology if you use the wedding language. And the, the, the Galilean in specific, the Galilean wedding. Now, the Galilean wedding is different than the regular other Jewish weddings. They follow the basic premise, but the Galilean wedding is way different in many respects. And it, it shows you, okay, where did the apostles come from? Where did Jesus come from? What area of Israel? Galilee. That's the wedding that they grew up with. They weren't in Judea. They practiced weddings different in Judea. Now, again, same kind of concepts, but the Judean, I'm sorry, the Judean wedding and the Galilean wedding is totally different the way they practiced it. But anyway, I, I would recommend getting that, that, that video. It's excellent. You watch it. You'll really understand eschatology. But the same is true on soteriology. If you understand Jewish wedding practices, if you understand those kinds of things, like the wedding feast and whatnot, then it opens the door for you to understand soteriology as well. So it's just not eschatology, it's soteriology. And here's the deal. If you understand the Jewish background, then the language makes perfect sense, and you can't mess it up theologically. You just can't. For you to deviate from the, the from the wedding language would show that you don't understand the Jewish background. And I think that's been the problem of, of, of Christian theologians that divorce themselves from the Jewish understanding of all this wedding, uh, wedding language, or, or basically Jewish culture. It's a whole different ballgame with a Galilean wedding. And, and it's, a, it's a picture, honestly, you can't get any other eschatology other than a pre-trib, pre-millennial out of it. You can't. There's just no other way to interpret that. Anyway, let's go on to the next page. So, based on what we know, then Paul throws this term in verse 29. For whom he foreknew. Now, this this kind of term is so misunderstood by Calvinists. Because you know what the Calvinists do? They put other meanings into the Greek word. And when you do that, you impregnate the word, and they have a pregnant word, we would call it, in the Greek, where they're pouring different meanings into the word. So what they will do is that they will say that foreknowledge means foreordination, or implies foreordination, or implies determinism, implies a decree simply because God foreknows something. And it doesn't mean that at all. That's ridiculous. 
foreknew, whom God foreknew, simply means that God, this comes out of God's omniscience, because God knows everything, past, present, and future. And foreknowledge means that God knows something about the individual before they're even created. And you have to say that, God, that God foreknows everything. He has, he, he knew, he foreknew all of, all of history. Before he even created the space-time continuum, he knew what would happen. He knew the angels would rebel. He knew Adam and Eve would fall. He knew man would rebel. He knew about the tribulation. He knew about the Messiah and who, how he would send the second person. They, he already knew this because of his omniscience. So foreknowledge is a theological understanding that because God has, has omniscience, he knows the future before it happens in the space-time continuum. That's all that means. It's simple as that. To put anything else into the word is to do what they call eisegesis. They're reading something into the word that's not there. Now, I gave you a key principle in hermeneutics. Theology must be built on linguistic and exegetical data, not the reverse where theology interprets the linguistic and exegetical data. So what the Calvinist typically does is approach a text like this with a presupposition in his head. And the presupposition is this, that foreknowledge indicates foreordination. You see how he's putting his theology on the Greek word before just simply reading what the Greek says. That's called a presupposition. And this is notorious for Calvinism. They approach the text and interpret elect, foreknowledge, predestination according to their system and not according to what they get out of the Scripture. So what you and I are supposed to do is we are to exegete the passage and pull out, exegete, pull out of the text what it's saying, and then we build our theology around that, not vice versa. Okay? And if you do that, you will not come up with Calvinism. Okay. Foreknowledge is a Greek idiom, so therefore we have some history with the, the, the term, okay? And when you look at the Greek history, whether you're looking at classical Greek, Koine Greek, Philo who used Greek, Josephus who used Greek, and the church fathers, all the church fathers before Augustine, all of them, the Greek idiom foreknew, for whom he foreknew, does not give any hint of foreordination, any hint of God choosing through foreknowledge, okay, of using that to choose people. It just says God foreknows something. So, um, and here's the deal. You can go to Thayer's lexicon. It does not give a Calvinist interpretation. You can go to, you can refer to Myers, uh, Philippi, and Van Hagel, and they oppose it. Uh, you look at L uh, Liddell, Scott, and Jones, nor Abbott Smith lexicons, and none of them ever hint of the Calvinist meaning. Now, when I, I mentioned those, those are lexicons. They give the definitions of the Greek words, and none of those say that foreknowledge includes foreordination. So what it tells you, early church fathers, Koine Greek, classical Greek, none of that gives the Calvinistic interpretation. It's just not there. 
So where are they getting it from? Well, they're getting it from Augustine. When the church, early church fathers, when they interpreted this passage, they held this. God's foreknowledge must not be understood as involving fatal necessity or compulsion by God, but that the events foreknown by, uh, by God are done by men of their own free choice. That's all the church fathers before Augustine. Koine Greek. That's just common Greek, yeah. It, it, well, it's kind of like, it, it, I, I, I would, I would say classical, obviously, because that's the refined area, but it's like when we, we have English and then there's slang English, right? So it's, it's the, the proper one is probably more accurate, but Koine Greek is still accurate as well. Well, I would say classical, obviously, because classical has to come first because Koine is a derivative of that. Because Koine is common Greek. And so when the Bible's put in Greek, it's not in classical Greek, it's in Koine. That's a big deal. The Greek level in the New Testament, it's at a fourth grade level. It's not very sophisticated. Now, there's some things that we don't know and it's hard to interpret, but if you think about that, it's on a fourth grade level in Greek. I think God was trying to send a message. He put it in common language at a fourth grade level. I want you to think about that. What are the implications of that? Anybody can understand it. It's common language. It's very simple, basic. And you're thinking, even God did the most gracious thing at putting at a very low level so everyone could understand. Isn't that amazing? You can see the evangelism in all of that, right? That's right. And when it went Latin, oh my goodness, the translations got so messed up when it went into Latin. And, and like Augustine, Augustine at the beginning, he, he despised Hebrew and Greek. Think about this. The guy who introduced Calvinism into, is Augustine. He didn't even know Hebrew and Greek. He didn't like it. Well, it's like if you're going to be a biblical scholar, you've got to know some Hebrew and you've got to know some Greek. But he didn't, he didn't carry. He went off the Latin. So that was a big problem. Um, anyway, yes. Right. I had the same uh, thing happen to me when I, I, I took Spanish in college. And they, they taught the Spanish that comes out of Spain, the Castilian. And I've been from California, and I'm like, those Spanish words are totally different. Uh, compared to the Spanish I'm hearing here in, in, in California versus Castilian Spain from Spain. I mean, it was like a totally, almost different language. Similar words, but they pronounce different things. And I, I thought, wow, there's a big difference. And so with the Koine versus classical, you're going to get the same thing. And so, thank God he did that. The Greek is the most precise language on the planet. And the Koine is, makes it even better because it's common. And then with the Hebrew, the Hebrew is a whole different ballgame. And I can go in rabbit trail on that, but the Hebrew is a alphanumeric system. So is the Greek, but Hebrew has a lot of embedded symbolisms in the words themselves. It's, it's really rich, and you've got to know all that. But um, anyway, let's continue on. So basically, to, just to break this out as simple as we possibly can, to foreknow something is basically to know beforehand. So... God knows beforehand what things are going to happen. You'll see this all the time. 
in, uh, in the scriptures. And even so, now here's the funny thing about Calvinism. It's weird. They'll say that God only knows what he decrees. Yeah, serious, man. And, and it puts them, it's like even the open deist who believes God doesn't know the future. But, and they're not in the same camp, but they, they limit God in his omniscience. Okay? That the Calvinist says God only knows what he decrees, and he doesn't know anything else other than what he decrees. And the open theist says he doesn't even know the future. And I believe both are wrong. What you see from the Bible is that God not only knows the future, but he knows what we call counterfactuals. Which means that God knows all possible possibilities that can, can, that can come from a particular situation. He knows hypotheticals. Now, you see these instances in Scripture, and I don't know why the Calvinists ignore this. David will ask the Lord, "Will should I go this way or should I go that way? Because if I go this way, will Saul kill me? And what does God say? Yes, if you go that way, Saul will kill you. So what is that? It's an example of knowing a counterfactual, right? Yes. About the future? Well, that, that he decreed everything that's going to happen, and nothing... So he decreed it, and because he decreed it, it will happen. It's a guarantee, which, okay, I'm following there, but it leaves no room for free will. There's no free will in that. And because there's no free will, there's no hypotheticals. God already knows exactly how, he decreed how someone will react, and he's, they're locked in as a robot. And therefore, if you ask them, does God know other possibilities? They would say no, because he only decreed one thing. He only knows what he decreed, and which is, it seems counterintuitive to me. It, it's like, what? He only knows what he decreed? Okay, so let me give you another example. Jesus pronounces a woe on uh, Chorazim, Bethsaida, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. You remember that? Woe to you. For if the miracles that I performed would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says what? What would have happened to them? They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now, what he had just explained to you is a counterfactual. He knew another possibility that would have happened in Sodom and Gomorrah had he been there to do these miracles. Some, the, the course of Sodom and Gomorrah would have changed. That's a call to counterfactual. So Messiah knows these, and he, so he explains that. So you'll, you'll see these little hints in Scripture where God knows all possibilities about a situation. And that could be millions, trillions of possibilities. That if one guy turns this way, what will happen? If a guy turns this way, he'll know, he knows what happens. And before you know it, you start... You start thinking about the millions of possibilities, billions of possibilities that can happen by one different move by you. One turn of the corner, one turn over here, one, one, I don't know, going here, whatever. All of that then signals a whole myriad of possibilities that are just constantly coming before you. Now, you don't never, never understand that, but all these possibilities are starting to lay out on every decision you make. And God knows everything what will happen.
in those decisions that you make. What's that? It does, doesn't it? Very boring. Because it's too small of a God that this God of Calvinism only knows what he decrees. No, my God knows the, the billions of counterfactuals that could possibly come from either me brushing my teeth or not. I mean, it's, it, that's how much knowledge God knows. He knows anything you do, what it'll set off. Now, how, uh, understanding counterfactuals, this is important to understand. In Acts 17, Paul will mention, because God knows counterfactuals, he then puts people in the best time and best place that gives them the best chances for them to reach out for him, according to Acts 17, and when he say, stated that on Mars Hill. So think about this. The counterfactuals that God knew about you and me is that I'm going to put this individual at this place and at this time in history because that gives him the best chance of coming free will to faith in me. So the counterfactual about you is you live in this period of time because it gave you the best chance. Any other period of time would not. Any other place would have not. So that's God knowing counterfactuals and working to your benefit about those counterfactuals. Then that's amazing. That's amazing. And it, when you start thinking about that, your mind will eventually go on tilt because you can't think that far to like a million counterfactuals. But he knows them. And he knows that if, if, if Brandon does this, this is what he's going to do. And if he does this, this is what he's going to do. And if he does this, and you make how many decisions a day? It, two decisions. So some of you might be just get up, brush your teeth, and that's it. And you just sit there. So he doesn't have to work too hard with you, obviously. I, I think because they sound so erudite and so educated on this, and it sounds so so pious that most people don't have the background to confront them. They don't have the background in the Bible to say, you know what, that doesn't sound right. I know a lot of people in their churches, they tell me, I don't know if I agree with all of that, but they don't have enough background to confront the guy over it. And so what happens is they let the guy get away with it. You know, they'll just stay there. And so let me, let me, I've told you this before. Here's a classic example of a confused Calvinist. And the congregation won't do anything about it. The guy will get up there and say, well, we just don't know about God's sovereignty, which he's using the term sovereignty wrong. We don't know about the God's sovereignty, and we don't know how man's free will work and all that works. But, you know, and when we get to heaven, you know, the gate will say, all ye enter here freely, and then behind the gate will say, all were chosen. So, I'm like, dude, you're so confused. And if it's a, it's a, if it's a miss in the pulpit, it's a fog in the, in the, in the gallery. When you say stuff like that, that means you don't know what you're talking about. Because that's a paradox, obviously, or no, not a paradox, a contradiction. And you're saying something that God's contradicting himself. And, and, but, but Richard, what does the average person do in the pew when they hear that? Well, he must know what he's talking about. I know he went to the seminary, but he must, he must know what he's talking about, right? <laughs> well, some of you, some of you already, you, you got that, right? Okay. Therefore, foreknowledge has nothing to do with decreed 
predestinated or foreordained. He just knew individuals. Okay, so here's my question before we go to the page three, and I don't know if we're going to finish all of this. Well, we're going to have to continue. Let me ask, so let me ask you this in the application. What does God know? Everything. Everything about you. Everything about every human being. So based on him knowing everything about you, and him putting you in ideal situations that would cause you to come to faith in him, his choosing of you will be based on what he knows about you. Because in the golden chain, foreknowledge will be used in that golden chain. Let me read it. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, when you see that passage, you have to then ask, okay, wait a second. What does predestination mean? Well, it means to be conformed to the image of the Son. It has nothing to do with salvation. Predestination. Anytime you see the word predestination in your scriptures, it does not refer to the individual. It refers to the benefits and blessings of being a believer. And the, you're predestinated to be conformed to the image of Messiah. That's what you're predestinated. So the package is predestinated. Okay. But then he says, to those whom he predestinated, he also called. Whom he called, those he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Okay. Come back to the parable. Come back to the parable. To understand the golden chain in Romans 8, go back to the parable of Matthew 22. Why were they called to receive the robes? How did they get the invitation? By faith, right? Okay, now let's bring it into theology. What does God foreknow about any human being before he even creates them? He knows who's going to believe and who isn't. He knows that. He has to know that. That's part of omniscience. Paul is using that term, Peter will use the term, that our salvation is based on this foreknowledge. It's not decreed, it's not foreordained, but God knows something about us intimately. And because he knows that, he then prepares a predetermined plan for us. Okay? The package deal. So, the missing element, when you look in the golden chain, it will seem to be missing, but it's really not missing. And it's the element of faith. Because when he gives the golden chain, more of those he predestined, those he called, to justified, those he justified, he glorified, all these passages right here, all those things, the golden chain they call it, faith will not be in there. Why is faith not in there? Because Paul's already talked about it. He has spent chapters 1 through 7 discussing faith. So he doesn't want to reiterate it. He already assumes that you already know what he's been talking about. Abraham believed God and was what? Accounted for righteousness. So Paul doesn't need to repeat himself. If you've been reading Romans and reading his letter, you already know that people are saved by faith. So he doesn't include that because he assumes you already know it when he talks about the golden chain. He's been talking about it for seven chapters. And so then when he gives the golden chain, he's responding to what that faith enacts with God. The golden chain is the enactment of God once someone believes. It's from God's standpoint. 
right? Our responsibility is to believe, right? And hence, the Calvinists will misinterpret and say, see, faith is not even in there. And I want to say, yeah, dude, because that's coming from God's standpoint. He's been spending seven chapters talking about where it comes from us. Faith. And hence, the idea hermeneutically is Calvinists will take this passage out of its context, lift it out, and assume that you don't know chapters 1 through 7, and assume that you, 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 you're not following the argumentation, and just take them out and say, this is what it means, see? And so, prima facie, on surface, this is what it will appear to most people, and they'll say, he must be right, because that's what it says. But they're pouring different meanings into the words. It's almost like what a cult does. When a cult uses the word Jesus, if the Mormons use the word Jesus, is that the same Jesus? No. Okay. Now bridge over to Calvinism. When a Calvinist uses the word election, are they using it by definition what the scriptures say it is? No. They misinterpret that. They use foreknowledge and they put a different meaning into that. They put a different meaning into predestination. They put a different meaning into all of this, these terms. They're using our terms and putting a different meaning into them. So that's why it sounds so biblical. By the faith chapter... Well, they'll, they'll use the Hall of Fame chapter of more of the individual's faith after salvation in doing certain things rather than the, the, the chapter 11 dealing with salvation. By faith, Noah built an ark. Or, you know, by, Abra by faith, Abraham did this. Those are examples of, a, of active faith after salvation. So they'll say that's just the, the people's faith being demonstrated out, proving that they're saved. Yeah. But... I'll come back again. Do your actions prove whether you're saved or not? Be careful how you answer that. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The Calvinist says, your works prove you're saved. Okay? They say, you what you're doing right now, prove you're saved. So if you're not doing good, you're not saved. Or you never were saved. So when we say... Should a believer's works fall, like in the Hall, Hall of Fame chapter of, of chapter 11 of Hebrews, when you see all those works that those people are doing, that is their faith being very active. So do you, let me, let me try to rephrase this. Your work should be like that, like in the Faith Hall of Fame. And the, the operative word I'm using is should. Okay? Should. It should be this way. But it's not necessarily that way all the time. And therefore, there's where the confusion comes, where, you know, well, you were never saved to begin with, or if you take the Arminian position, well, you lost your salvation. And that's not what's going on either. There are immature Christians. There are carnal Christians. There are bad Christians. There are wicked Christians. There are demon-influenced uh, Christians. Yeah, fighting Christians, yeah. I mean, you name it, there's all kinds of different Christians. There are mature Christians, uh, there are worldly Christians. So you got to know who you're dealing with, right? I, I agree. I think all the cults should be taught. And, and that being the case, that's when a, a new believer is more susceptible to false doctrine than any time in their lives is when they're new. And there's, there's a great falling away of new believers uh, all the time because of that. And, and how many of these churches, you know, suck in all these new believers that don't know anything and they, they, they think it's pietistic.
and it's really getting them into Manichaeanism and Stoicism. And Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.